Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, Happy New Year. Good morning. I love this church. Love is good. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. And then I'm going to spend two weeks to do that, as a matter of fact. I, I, at times in the lobby, sometimes um, during our newcomer lunch that's coming up in, later on in January, people will say, okay, what's the, what's, what's, what's the deal with grace? What's, there's this vibe. It's an atmosphere. It's like, I don't know what it is. Um, but, and some people like it and some people don't, but it's there, you know, and, and what, like, what are like distinctives? Do you have words that you could attach to, to this thing that seems indescribable that could help me understand who grace is? And it's like, yeah, okay, but, um, let's just, let's just pretend that I've been watching way too much college football and I'm going to use a sports analogy for our whole time. And it's like, what makes grace team grace? Okay. Team grace. So that's us. That's, and there's primarily there's two issues that find it's that that they find their way into a lot of the things that we do Two distinctives that don't necessarily define who we are, but that, that aura thing. Right. And, and here there are team values and, and coaches values. Okay. Team values and coaching values, those are the, what make us uh, maybe in some respects different. Again, this is kind of not necessarily who we are, but kind of how we feel, right? It's the vibe. It, 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 what it, and what I'd like to do this, the next two weeks is the first week I want to explain what these, what these words, these phrases mean. Okay, this, this week, we're gonna, what, is, what does that mean, team values? What are coaching values? And then next week, we're going to look at how that applies, how it looks in everyday life. I'm going to have someone come and I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but uh, tell, explain what it's like to be right part of the team, Grace, and what it looks like in the regular world. So we're going to explain. So this week is kind of inspiration and information about how we are and what we're like, and then next week is like application, how, we're, how we could do that. Hopefully that'll be inspiring as, as well. So let's start at the first, right? We're defining terms team values, team values at Grace. This is part of the, this is pervasive in our church. It goes all the way back to the inception of the church, but um, uh, we drill down on this. We repeat it. We protect it. We make sure uh, it's safe, this value, because it goes against every inclination in our human soul. It, it is contrary to the deepest intuitions within us that's, and and it, we have to keep, I mean, our, we want to go back to this old system, and we got we to gotta keep pulling it back to this key value, this team value. Let me, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. I'm going to give you some context first to just illustrate, right, how contrary this, uh, this value is. In the history of mankind, in every culture and every civilization, it is known deeply within the souls of every individual that, that comparatively speaking, the human is small and weak, and, and they, every culture is believed in some form of a deity, and he is great and mighty and other, right? Uh, big words would be transcendent. He is out there not like us. He can't be had or handled, and, and we're not worthy. And, you know, again, you, you get specific revelation. You know, we've been given this from God through the Jews in the Old Testament first and foremost, and, yeah, being very specifically that 
We are unworthy and small and defiled, and he is infinitely great and powerful and holy or pure. Now, the point is, is that, that there's, there's this tremendous and almost infinite gulf between God being transcendent and man being uh, temporal. So, again, in the Old Testament, you can see again and again a phrase being used, you know, who can see the face of God and live? And, and that, that expression is a perfect way to describe this chasm. And so, you know, for many, in many respects, the history of mankind is, is some kind of history of how do we bridge the Gulf. How do we get that gap? We, we long for intimacy with God. We're like, we're like moths flying to the sun. The closer we get to it, we're probable our wings will just burn off and we'll die. And so what, what we do as men desiring this is can, every culture takes priests, right, to work in a temple of some, of some kind and provide sacrifices to appease the distance between God and man. That's how it, it's always been. And so you look at, at non-Jewish, right, not, whatever kind of culture you want to go to, you see the ruins of these people, thousands of years old, some of them, and they're, they're places of worship. And they had priests that worked these places of worship, and they gave their most valuable possessions. So if it's as, as uh, unsophisticated or, or tribal as a, a man all dressed up grabbing, you know, the the local virgin and carrying to the top of the volcano and throwing her in, right? As simple as that is and, and almost humorous, you know, when you think of it in, in a cartoon context, you think, what are they doing? You know, and why the virgin? Because it's pure. Why take the virgin? Because it's pure. And maybe the gods or whatever won't be angry at, with us anymore. Priests in the temples giving sacrifice. Priests are always separate. They're distinct. They're over there. They, they wear the most precious garments. They have them custom made. They usually have a headdress of some kind to distinguish, to distinguish them from everyone else. Right? And, and this is not just to impress the people, the other people that I'm, you know, like I'm a priest and I'm over here and you're down there, but, but more to the idea that I'm going to go in the presence of God or get near him and I, and I won't take this lightly. I'll bring the best that our people can can do to clothe me, to prepare myself for a royal presentation, right? I'm in the presence of royalty. And so that's why they, the priests dress that way. They're very special people. In the Old Testament, you can, again, now we have very special revelation for that. In the Old Testament, it had to be this one tribe of people from this one family tree, and they had to wear certain things, and they had jewels covering their chest and head, head garments, again. And, and they couldn't even own real estate because they were so separate. They were to be in towns, but they, were, they, they wouldn't have an income. They couldn't get jobs because the people were to provide for them. Very distinct. And they worked in a holy temple. Again, you look at all the ruins all over the world, every continent, you know, except in Antarctica, right? There's some form of beautiful building that is u- using the most expensive uh, quality materials that were available to them and the best craftsmen, most articulate artistry is provided in each one of these things. Old Testament, right? The three temples, they were all done in a marvelous manner because they were representing a place where they would meet with God, man and God meeting together and sacrifices were given in every culture. It is a precious sacrifice. It is the most valuable thing. It is the purest 
commodity that you might have. It was expensive to you. And that's how it's always been in every culture. And we know specifically how it was supposed to be in the Older Testament to just give more evidence to that fact. And then, and then, and then Jesus. And Jesus comes as the ultimate high priest, as the perfect temple, and as a priceless gift of sacrifice, and does away with the system, completely bridges the gap. And the reason it worked, it doesn't work in the other ways, is because all the other ways are man trying to reach God, and then God solves the problem by becoming like man, coming down and bridging that gap, and does away with this. The chasm's gone, the bridge is built, but it's built from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven. And so, so the whole thing changes. Again, it's contrary to everything intuitive within every human soul to think these thoughts, that you and I are now priests. And in four sentences in 1 Peter, he's going he's to state these radical declarations of who you are now, who you really are now because of what Jesus did. 1 Peter verse. 2.9 says this. It's up on the screens. Now, you are, cho- you are a chosen people. Chosen. You're a royal priest, holy nation, God's very own possessions, and as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received the mercy of God. This is one of the several sentences that we find in the Bible. These are declarations of fact. This is why we have a conviction. This is a team value that every believer is a minister. Every believer is a priest, is a priest, friend. That separate person that communicates to God, that goes to God in his presence, right, and communicates back from God to other people. Every believer is that. And that's why we say at Grace, I'm just a pastor, but you're the minister. Right? And we say it over and over and over again because we want to go back to finding someone else to be our priest. I won't be your priest because you're a priest. Let me just show you that Jesus fulfills all the needs for the sacrificial system and bridges this gap by being all three things. He's the priest. He's the great high priest, but not from the tribe of Levi, it says in Hebrews, but rather from a different tribe, from a tribe, what's called of Melchizedek, a, a separate priestly king, a peaceful king that had no lineage. We don't even know where he came from or where he went. And he is the eternal temple. He said his body was the temple that would be destroyed and resurrected again. He said that his body was actually the real thing And the temple was just a shadow, you know, for the spiritually learning impaired so we could kind of touch it and and learn from the symbols, from the concrete things that symbolized things that were real in him. And the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, all those years sacrificing the best lamb we have. And the last Old Testament prophet says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, he does, he ends the sacrificial system by becoming all the elements of the sacrificial system. Doesn't leave it there, friends. He says, now I'm going to turn you into little Jesuses. And you become the priest. 
and you become the temple, and you become the sacrifice. You're the priest. You're told how to, to be a proclaimer. We'll talk in a moment. Your, your, your temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it says in the Bible. Treat it like that. Treat it like the Holy Spirit is indwelling this physical thing. Treat it well. And then the sacrifice, your life is a sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice, Romans 12. Your life is it's a logical thing to do is to give your life as a living sacrifice to him, your body, soul, and spirit, because of Jesus bridging this gap for you. It, it, this is so radical. It, wouldn't it be wonderful if, um, because again, I think we're just going to always, we're going to always look at church history. It's always trying to find a priest. Let's get somebody else to tell us what to believe and tell us what to do, and we'll just do that. But what if, what if God were to give us like a pocket mirror and we could just open this up, and we would not see necessarily our face, but rather our soul from God's point of view. I mean, look at just verse 9. Look at what is happening in just verse 9, the way God sees us, all that he has for us. For you are a chosen people, a royal priest, right? You are a holy nation, God's very own possession. Okay, chosen people. Here's, here's, here's you, okay? Here's me. We're mutts. I don't, we, don't, we might have about five people from a, a family of Judaism, but the rest of us are just mutts. We're like one of those rescue mutts that you can get at the, at the dog pound that are mean, you know, like mangy and without hair and malnourished. And what does it say? He chose us in that condition, right? And then, and then, he, and then he cleans us up. We're his, we're his own possession, it says. We who had no identity now have an identity in, in the Lord, it says in 10. We had no mercy. Now we have the mercy of God. Now here we are, right, in the throne room with, you know, the golden hair and the looking all special. We did not, we weren't best in show and earned our way into that throne room. He chose us. We became his possession, it says. That's what you see in this mirror. You see him choosing him owning. And then what else does it say? Royal priesthood. To a ro- we get to show the goodness of God, it says, to other people. Go and tell. We are proclaimers of the goodness of God because it says he led you out of the darkness and into the wonderful light. We've, we found the way out. So we go back. We proclaim the goodness of God. Follow me. I know the way. It's through the temple of Jesus. It's through the priest of Jesus. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus. Come, with, come this way. He gives us that. He gives us that. He has ordained you as a priest. Okay? He has, given, he has given you the authority to be his representative here with the people around you. This is so powerful. And again, and it's radical. If you try to picture what could happen if we if we kind of understood and, and utilized this reality. Okay, you remember the movie, maybe most of you saw the movie The Matrix in 1999, where it was like Plato's cave kind of, right? And so the power of the Matrix that it had, it had kind of the influence it had, is amongst other things, everybody like in this imaginary Matrix, this alternate reality, was a potential agent against Neo, the, the guy, okay? But I mean, so what would so there's this woman with groceries walking home, and then all of a sudden she became 
an agent. And then there's a boy riding his bike, and he became an agent. There's a bus driver. He became an agent. And Neo's like, I don't, you're everywhere all the time. Where can I go? Well, that's what it means if every believer is a priest, every believer is a minister. If only, look, if everybody, if everybody saw themselves as that, we we're taking our pocket mirrors out, we start our day, we're stuck in traffic, and we see ourselves as chosen, we once without mercy now, we have mercy once without identity, we have this identity, and we see ourselves that way, then every one of us, every school teacher, right, every, every coach, every player, every worker, every boss, are you, I mean, can you imagine someone just coming, you know, coming home from work going, they're everywhere, honey. They're absolutely everywhere. And they're proclaiming and they're leading us out. That's, that's the team value. I'm just the pastor, but you're the... And I hope you feel the weight of that. And I hope you feel the privilege of that. That you're his very own possession. He, he calls you his. He says, you're mine. Now, before we go on to the coaching value, in the passage here, I told you four verses in First Peter, First Peter tells us how to be a priest or what it's like. The, the next two are going to tell us how to be a priest. We're going to spend next week on that very specifically, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blaze through this pretty quickly, okay? But it's going to tell us, you know, kind of act like a priest. It gives us two commands, verses 10 and 11, or 11 and 12, Dear friends, verse 11 says, Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners to this world, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. So that's the verse that followed 10. So it's like, as, as a priest, look, don't be, don't just leave here. Let's put it this way. Just be at peace with being an outsider. Priests have always been outsiders. Just relax. You're not from here. You're supposed to not fit in. You're a foreigner. You're just, you know, just kind of on a green card for a while. You're just passing through. And so the cultural values of more don't get contaminated in that. You've got to have more stuff. You've got to have more control. You have to have more power. You have to, you know, have more notoriety. Whatever that is, like, no, no, that's not it. You know, priests didn't even own real estate. They, didn't, they weren't like everyone else. And so there's a part of it that's saying you should be distinctive from the culture. And what happens sometimes, you'll see this, is when, when the church just acts like everyone else, everyone else doesn't need the church. <laughs> what do you have that I don't have? You're just like me. That's really cool. You don't do anything that I don't do. He's saying, no, no, no. Don't let that culture... Take the life of your, of your identity away and your mercy away and your priestliness away. So, and then the second thing he tells us to do is be distinctive, right? Be a great example. Verse 12 says, so you be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. So even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. Christians will always have a bad reputation in general as a culture because we're always counterculture. Oh, so if you look at the history of the church, they usually had a smudge in some, some, some reasons legitimate. Don't get me wrong. But uh, in our contemporary way, it doesn't matter what's being advertised or being, uh, what we're being persecuted or accused of. If you live such an honorable life that your neighbor can say, you know what? All that stuff I've been hearing about the church, 
it just doesn't seem to apply to you because of your integrity and your honor and your generosity and your hospitality, uh, your ability to suffer well, right? Those sorts of values, they just say, you know what? The evidence in your life overwhelms the noise that I keep hearing. Be a priest. Be chosen. See yourself as that, okay? It, the, the, the application for this, this first part of the team value is to see yourself as one of the verses that we claim a lot around here. In 2.10, Ephesians 2.10, it says, God says, you are God's workmanship created for good works for you to do in Jesus Christ, listen, before the beginning of time. So God has given you opportunity. The, the application is to have this value or this vision. You take out your pocket mirror and you see yourself as this priest and you're, you're walking around looking for opportunities to be a priest, to be the person who proclaims the greatness and the goodness of God, to be the person that says, I have been led out of the darkness into the glorious light. I know you come with me, follow me. I mean, you've got a beaten path. You've got, right, you've got a trail dug because you've done this so many times. And you see yourself as this chosen person to do these various things. Next week, I want to interview someone. I want you, I want you to come next week. I want you to hear what it's like for some, a person that, like, let this passage grip her. And she looked at her neighbors and her friends and her kids' parents and said, wow, look at all the priestly activity I have right in front of me. Okay. We'll look at that next week, how to apply that. Okay. So that's, that's, what it, that's our team value. Every believer is a minister. I'm just a pastor. You're the ministers. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is, is coaching values. Coaching values um, has to do with, like, I guess how, how you, the team values and the coaching values kind of combine. And, again, they define the aura. This is why people like the grace. Sometimes this is the reason people don't like. This is team coaching values sometimes is why people leave in frustration. While you can have this, this team value where every believer is a minister, you still have to answer the question, but how are you going to apply that? I mean, what's it look like? I mean, coaches, all the coaches want to win, right? But how do you coach to win? And we have a, a coaching style that, um, that's, that's a little bit different. And listen, from the outside looking in, when you see two teams on the field and they have two different coaching styles, they look kind of the same. But if you're on the team, it's entirely different. Oh, you'll know the difference. I, excuse me, coaches, I'm going to reduce coaching to two different styles, okay? But here's, here's predominantly the two big styles out there. This is by far, A, by far the most popular, the most prominent, the traditional model is this. You put out this big vision, a big goal out there, and you tell everybody this is what we're living and dying for, okay? This, this is what we're doing, and you get on board with that. It's, it's the idea of looking out there. They misquote a passage in the Bible, you know, without a vision, the people perish. Like, this is our vision. Let's go. And they recruit to that vision. They qualify to that vision. You, don't, you know, if you're on a team, if you're coaching, it's like, do you want to do this? No? Go find somebody that does. You know, we're, you know go find a team somewhere else. We're going to just we're recruiting to this. This is our vision. Get on. Get busy. Okay, Jim Collins kind of made this famous a few years ago with Built to Last, his book, because he brought that idea to the business world. He called it, it was, the initials are BHAG, 
big, hairy, audacious goal. And what your business needs, if you want it to last, is this big, hairy, audacious goal. BHAG. We're a BHAG kind of team. We're BHAGging it, man. And so on a, on a, on a coaching level, you say our big, hairy, audacious goal is we're going to go undefeated this year and we're going to win. We're going to win it all. Now, get busy. Okay? In business, your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal, it's like we're going to go public in two years. Get busy. Get on this. This is what we're going to do, right? Um, churches. Churches do this. They do it all the time. We're going to reach the world. We're going to reach the neighbor. We're going to reach the city, wherever. This is it. That's our BHAG. Get on that. Get busy. That's what you do. Now, the, the value is you put, that, you put that big goal on the walls. You paint it on the walls everywhere. You, you, you have everybody memorize your big, hairy, audacious goal. You have people salute it. You pledge allegiance to it. Let's go. Ready? Break. Okay, that's not the way we coach here. There's another model, and we're, so I just want you to know, that's why we don't have, like, the big, hairy, audacious goal. And this is what really frustrates a, a fair amount of people that attend here, and some people just leave in frustration because they're goal-oriented people, and they want to know what it is and how we're going to keep score. How are we keeping score? I need to know. It's like we're keeping score different. There's another way of coaching. I'm going to introduce to you on the screens very brief interview with two of the winningest coaches. It's not about winning. It's about how you win, okay? Two of the winningest coaches in NCAA basketball history. The first one is Dan Meyer. He was the winningest coach in basketball history, and he had a change of his coaching style. And then he was replaced as the winning, by the winningest coach, current winningest coach uh, in the history of NCAA basketball, Coach K of Duke University. They're going to tell you how they coach now and what led them to the success they have, but it's but listen, it's only about 30 seconds. But apparently, if you're a basketball coach, you save all of your energy for the court because when you're interviewed, oh, this is hard to watch, okay? So it's only 30 seconds, but nobody leave. Nobody drift off. I'm going to be back in 30 seconds. Let's play this video. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not real big on goals. Um, we just wanted to have the best practice we could every day. We weren't going to try and win so many games or win the state. I mean, if we're the best team we can be, we might do some of those things, but there's no need to put needless pressure on yourself by setting goals like that. Well, character drives everything. You know, either in a, a lack of it drives it downward. Uh, when you have a lot of it, it drives upward. And uh, character is the foundation upon which you win. There you go. Coach Meyer? I don't coach goals, I coach the players. Coach K, right, now the winningest coach in basketball, he says, I coach character. I'm not coaching winning, I'm coaching character. If you went to a coaching seminar, any, either one of these men were teaching or both are teaching, actually at some coaching seminars, here's what they'll write up on the board. They'll say, people are greater than the player. And in our case, it would be the priest is greater than the player. That's our coach's value. That's how we coach here. That's our coaching philosophy. That's our coach value. Again, that's one of the reasons that we have the feel that we have, and it's frustrating for some, and it's exhilarating for others. I'll tell you that in my opinion, that coaching the big, hairy, audacious goal is, is bad for a few reasons, for three reasons. One is... <laughs> 
when you're part of a team or part of a church or part of an organization like a business and it's the big, hairy, audacious goal thing and that's what's out there and it's on the walls and all that, it's not long before you feel like you're a human doing, not necessarily a human being. You're a cog in a machine and you can be replaced and, yeah, whatever. It's, it doesn't take long for that to happen. The second reason that it's especially difficult to, to coach for that kind of we're going to win it all is that there's so many variables outside of your control. You can't control most of life. And, and if you're living your goal around something that won't happen or can't happen, whether it's God's will or whatever it might be, then, then you, you'll never get there. Here's what's interesting. Okay, this is the first year of the NCAA college football playoffs. Okay, there were four teams in the playoff. Three of the four lost a game before they got there. Three of the four lost a game before they got there. Now, if the coach was coaching for we're going to go undefeated, what happens in the third week when they lose? They've lost the whole season. And they couldn't control that because they're college boys. And the quarterback broke up with his girlfriend and the kicker, you know, stubbed his toe. Right? You, there's too many variables. But you know what they coached for? They coached the players. And they said, we're going to get up and we're going to play the best. Tomorrow we're going to have the best practice we've ever had in our lives. And we're going to play the best game we can ever play next Saturday. That's what they did. One of those coaches, Coach D at Michigan State. Coach D at Michigan State went from coaching a big, hairy, audacious goal to coaching players. And that's why he's so successful. As a matter of fact, the quarterback for the Washington Redskins went to Michigan State. Here's, here's how he said Coach D changed his life because of his coaching style. He said, the thoughtful outlook, the supportive attitude, those personal conversations, they weren't a stunt. It wasn't like it was a gimmick. He read it in a book. Okay, coach players or people, not players. He literally cared. Rather, they're examples, just a few of the many that I could give you, of a culture that Coach D has built at Michigan State over the last, or the last nine years. It's a culture that values people as people, not as athletes, not as blue chips, not as superheroes, not as scapegoats. He uses relationships more than anything else as a positive energy source. Coaching a big, hairy, audacious goal is problematic because it's dehumanizing. It's very easy to become dehumanized. Second of all, there's too many variables that are out of your control. But here's the third reason why we don't teach it that we don't coach that way. It's not our coaching style. Is we don't. I'm not, personally, I don't think it's it's so much in the Bible that way. If you look at the passages and the number of passages and the amount of like energy that is put into the lives of the people that are following Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Peter and Paul you'll see that they coach the people, not the player. You'll see that they're all about character, not necessarily winning. They had as a goal, you know, to spread the kingdom of God, but that's not what they spent their time on. They spent their time on individuals. Look at first Col or Colossians chapter 1. Let me just show you one of many verses, but I'll show you how this sets this up. But in verse 29, Paul's going to, I'm going to start in opposite order. Verse 29, he's going to talk about all the work he's doing. In verse 28, he's going to explain what's it for. Verse 29, this is, this I toil. Okay, it is for this purpose that I toil and I struggle with all the energy that Christ powerfully inspires within me. What's he saying? He's a coach. 
Coaches work hard. Coaches work harder than anyone else. They're the first guys on the field. They're the last guy to leave. They show up at dark. They leave at dark. They are toiling and struggling. And you know what Paul is toiling and struggling with? Stencils. Yeah, he's putting that big, hairy, audacious, reach the world, you know, whatever his, the, the goal is. That's what he's doing. He's getting everybody to memorize it. He's, getting every, he's sitting down with people and saying, are you in or you out? Are you in or you out? Nope. That's not what he's toiling for. This is verse 28. It's what he's toiling for. It is Christ who I proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, here it is, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's his goal. That's his coaching philosophy. That's his, that's his coaching value. He's going to use, in Christ, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to keep teaching everyone and warning everyone, and I'm going to put this, this, this like, what would you call it? Um, like a radioactive seed in the souls of these people. Right? So that it permeates their whole body, their whole intellect, their emotion and will. Because it is their, their greatest longing, their greatest desire. It is their treasure. I'm going to teach in a way that makes Jesus Christ their treasure, not for a goal, but rather for this. So that everyone would be mature in Christ. That word is sometimes translated complete in Christ. Com- or perfect in Christ. You know what that is? That's character coaching. That's people over player. That's priest over doer. That's how it looks. That's what they talk about when they talk about their desires for the people that are reading their, their epistles. Here's what we do on our, here's what it looks like kind of in a concrete way on our staff. Here's what we try to say to our staff members, every one of our staff members. Okay? We say this, we, the, the leadership of our church, will say, we, we love you and we trust you. Now, now, go use your gifts and make some magic happen out there, okay? I, ho- I hope you feel the freedom that, that happens when, look, we, we love you and we trust you. Now, let's go. Let's go play. Let's get, let's get out there. Maybe let's get a bloody nose or something. Come on. But see, it's, it's, it's this confidence of something that's assured because we've been chosen, right, and we're his possession, and we... What if, what if our little, what if we could take our little, like our pocket mirror out, we could strap some headphones to it, and it would say this, you know, Jesus is saying, look, I love you, and I trust you, and I, and I have, I have ministry opportunities all over, just go, just go, use your gifts and do these things, use your gifts and do these things, does that, does that feel like a team you want to be on? Look, in summary, um, at Grace, we have, these, we have these values, right? Team values and coaches value, coaching values. And the team values is every believer is a minister. Every believer is a priest. And the coaching value is that we're going to teach and our hope is going to be for maturity, not a goal necessarily, right? And now with that, with that being the case, I, wanna, I want us to look in briefly at a, I'm going to translate a passage that is foundational for this church. This is why, in many respects, why this church was started 45-plus years ago. Okay? Watch how important it is that it's pervasive everywhere in the atmosphere, in the vibe, and everything else. Look, Ephesians 4, chapter 11, or chapter 4, verse 11. It says, so Christ gave the church, right, 
apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Who's that? Coaches, right? Gave them coaches, okay? What do the coaches do? Verse 12, to equip the people. Whoa, because every believer is a minister. They're all priests. To equip the people for the works of the service so the body of Christ may be built up. See? Every believer is a minister. So that, verse 13, until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to become mature. Same word. Mature, perfect, whole, complete. Coaching character, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. People over players. Priests over players. That's our goal. That's what we do. That's what we toil. That's what we struggle. That's why we're here early. That's why we stay late. Let me just review. This is what makes us grace, I think. Okay? It doesn't define us. It just gives us the feel. Feel. It's, it's team value. Every, pre, every believer is a priest chosen by God, and it's contrary to everything you want to believe, and so you have to just keep going back to believing it because God proclaimed it to be true. And our coaching value is we're not going to use you. We're going to let God use you. You'll be used by God. Okay. And when you look at the teachings of Jesus and Peter and Paul, you can see them coaching character. And so that's, that's what we do. We coach character. Priest first. That you be complete and mature. Right? Perfect. Listen, this hit me a few years ago. And it was like knocked me down um, just, just a couple years ago when I saw it in, in such a beautiful way. Uh, go Spurs go. Grew up in San Antonio. But hey, by the way, do you know who um, the most decorated NBA basketball player is today? I mean, currently, like, a lot. It's, it's, it's not LeBron. It's not Iverson. It's Tim Duncan. And, and commentators and people make fun of him because he's, because he's so self-deprecating. He, he doesn't self-promote, and he passes the ball too much when he could be shooting to get more points for his own record. And, but, but you know why? Because he's coached by Popovich, and Popovich coaches character, and no one has done it, in my opinion, in, at least in the NBA, like, like Pop, Popovich. He only takes spurs. He's made a few mistakes, but he only takes a spur, a, a person that wants not to win, to, but to become whole. Here's a very strange thing. This is what knocked me down. I couldn't, I couldn't talk because this was happening in 2014 when they won the uh, NBA championship. This is the stage when they're, just, they're getting their trophies. Do you see something that's kind of weird, a little bit strange, maybe off-centered? You see Popovich in the back left corner? Okay, when they all went on that stage, right after they won, they set up the stage immediately, and the, and the confetti cannons went off, and the, the whole team was up there, and Popovich was in his coaching chair on the floor, looking at them and enjoying their victory. The only reason he's on the stage is that the handler said, you kind of need to be up on the stage, you're the coach. And he said, okay, fine, you know, and, I'll, and he got behind a wall of seven-foot men and said, I'll be fine right here. And they handed out the two trophies, the championship trophy and the MVP pro trophy, and that's where he was. Friends, that's a picture of what we value here at Grace. The leadership at Grace, we celebrate your victories. We celebrate when you, you get the vision of what God has done in your life, 
and you get to be that person. Everybody's an Esther. Everybody loves the story of Esther. For such a time as this, and God arranged circumstances so that this little princess could be the one to save Israel. Everybody's Esther. It's a follower of Jesus Christ. He has arranged all things before time for you to do good works in Christ. That's what we celebrate here. It's your ministry and your development. It's when you become more mature. When we get letters from people and, and you say, I've had a habit of sin or some sort of compulsive behavior or anger towards my in-laws for this many years, and I've repented, I've sent letters, I've had conversations, we're working on restoration, I'm becoming mature. That's coaching character. That's priest over player, over doer. That's what makes us who we are here. It's, it's, it's in the atmosphere. It's how we keep score. It's a really hard way to keep score, but it's how we do it. My vision, my hope rather for today is that you would see, you would have this vision for being a priest and seeing the, all the opportunities that's ahead of you and that you would desire to be mature. Your hope and your, your longing would be that Jesus would be your treasure. Next week, don't miss. We're going to show what this looks like in a real-life situation in real life, okay? Let's pray to the end of our ambitions today. Lord Jesus, we lift up these truths, and we're going to choose to believe them. Everything within us says, no, 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 no. Not only can I not have intimacy with you, but I cannot be that special person that is a priest amongst the pagans who brings your, your goodness, the revelation of your goodness to people, the, that leads people out of darkness and into to light. I, I, I can't believe I'm that person. I want you to convince me I'm that person. I want my faith to be in the promises of God that you said so, and so I'm buying it. And so, Lord, I'd ask this week that you would open my eyes to the the good works that you've arranged before time that, we're, that I'm supposed to do in Jesus Christ. Give me an action or, or a conversation or a vision for all that you've done before time so that I could be a priest. Make me one of your agents that just keeps popping up. Give me the character and the desire to be different, but also winsome and a person of integrity that I might be a priest. Lord Jesus, I'd ask that you would please, please help us believe and see that you bridged that gap and made us into a royal priest. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.